You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me, yet again. Soon the pandemic will be over and I'll be able to have guests again. My co-hostess with the mostest, Paul Doroshenko. You can always have call-in guests. It's just the quality isn't as good. You're very consistent with this introduction. I know. I don't know if I've, if I've ever been really happy about it. I don't mind being the hostess. Um, no, you're not the hostess. You're the co-hostess. I know. With the mostest. I know, but every time it sounds like the hostess. And I, I mean, I don't mind, but it's just like... What are you, uh, what are you like concerned that I'm misgendering you? Like, no, that your... doesn't bother me. I mean, I, I understand that, that people have very strong, understandable there, feelings about these things. They're a problem with being a hostess as opposed to a I co-host? That's the point. I don't mind. It doesn't really doesn't matter to me, but um, you're just very consistent with it. Yes. Over the years. Yes. Well, consistency is important. The it listeners important. tune into the podcast. They expect to hear. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I'm Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me yet again, yeah, my co-host. You don't have to repeat it. They've but heard can, it. But if I they've can do listened it. to it, they've heard it before. Yes, you can. It is your <laughs> podcast, after all. And it's you're actually here, so you can have some control over it, where, you know, when I'm here and you're at home, I have some control over the duration of our discussion on everything, and... I know. You, you bothers you a little bit. It does. You can't see my face when I'm like, that's enough, Paul. Stop talking about this. Or when I'm ready to jump in with an awesome point and you just keep talking. Yes, I apologize for that. <laughs> I'm just simply sorry. That's all. <laughs> yes. Good. <laughs> that's the state that all men should be in all the time. Just sorry. <laughs> well, as a man, I don't know that I appreciate that, but I'm sorry about that too. So please go ahead. So we have a bunch of cases to talk about, and they've all kind of been on hold because we've had all sorts of big, crazy cases and big, crazy news that has occupied our driving law time. But before we turn to the past, let's talk about the decision that was released today, Thursday, the day we're recording this, from the Supreme Court of Canada. Yeah, um, it was an interesting decision, an interesting split decision, interesting, important decision for the country dealing with, of course... Um, carbon, tax. carbon taxes and uh, something that we've had in BC for a long time and people don't you know struggle with the idea it was Gordon Campbell who introduced the carbon tax in BC uh, Gordon Campbell was a pretty green premier overall and he was adamant that this was the best way to reduce greenhouse gases was to make it expensive mm-hmm. uh, and to tax it and uh, and there was opposition the NDP of course uh, said they would repeal it if they were ever elected, and of course they didn't, and thank goodness they didn't. Uh, but uh, the uh, it, it has been very effective and not unpopular in British Columbia, and it has done served the purpose. Yes, but the federal government introduced some carbon tax, and this is where the genesis of this case came from. The provinces were like, hold on, you can't introduce well, a carbon tax. The, con- the conservative provinces were. Right. Yeah. Uh, BC was like, meh. BC, we, we were fine with it because the legislation said that if the provincial government doesn't do it uh, in any particular province, then the federal government will do it. Yeah. And that was part of the potential nub of the problem 
when it came to whether or not they had the authority to do it. Well, and there were all sorts of cases that sort of litigated this carbon tax issue leading up to what went to the Supreme Court of Canada. Like, I think it was Doug Ford who had had instructed all the gas stations to put stickers on the pump. Well, about, that was a constitutional you know, argument, a freedom of expression yep. argument, and they were not successful. But when the carbon <laughs> tax was challenged in Alberta, uh, you know, it was found to be uh, within the the constitutional power of the federal government to pass that legislation, but there was one dissent at the Court of Appeal. Yep. So it was destined, obviously, for the Supreme Court of Canada because of the national interest and because with of With more dissents. With more dissents. And well, like a, like a, dis, two, two dissenting judges and then one judge that's like, yeah, I concur, but for different reasons and not on everything, and then the majority. But two dissenting judges out of nine. And yeah. so what does that tell you if you were to run your trial? <laughs> well, hang on. What does that tell you if you were to run your trial and they were trial judges? Okay, say you were in BC Supreme Court and you had a trial judge. You would get uh, two or maybe three out of nine would go a different way than six out of nine judges. So say you've got to run a trial. You're there, you know, you've got a legal issue. You've got your, your, your credibility issues. You're going to run a trial in court. If you get one of these six judges, it will go this way. If you get one of these three judges, it will go this way. That's basically what these split decisions tell me. And does that inspire you with confidence in the rectitude of our justice system? Like, are these decisions ever anything other than a construct? Yes. And also, I think that there's lots of evidence for that on the vast number of unanimous decisions that the Supreme Court of Canada historically has released. Yes, we see decisions with some dissents. We see decisions with concurring reasons. Um, and we see unanimous judgments. It doesn't mean that our justice system is flawed. It's the reality of presenting arguments to a finder of, of fact or to a determiner, determine, determiner of the law um, who's going to, you know, consider the arguments. And different things will persuade different people. Look, like, I, you know, uh, you were telling somebody today that lots of prosecutors think I'm great and some prosecutors hate me they can't stand me so you know it is what it is well they have a different experience with you what I'm telling you is the same information is put before the court in front of nine mm -hmm. different justices mm -hmm. just like the same information could be put before nine mm -hmm. different judges yep, and but when you, you know you run into you're sitting there having lunch with judges and they'll tell you about when they were in judges school and they would all go home with a fact pattern or go back to their hotel rooms that night and the next day give a judgment and it would be split. Yeah, they're people. People different, you know, yes, as much as yes, judges... but as imagine you're a part... Let me speak. Excuse me, I am speaking. <laughs> um, judges are human, just like the rest of us. And so even though, you know, they're supposed to disabuse themselves of all of their personal biases, their experience still shapes their viewpoint about the world and the law. And they, I, I would prefer to have a judge whose lived experience has shaped viewpoints about the world and about the law than a judge who is a robot. I mean, you're basically they, advocating for... No, I'm not. They, they, of course they all have lived experience. What I'm telling you is how do you feel as a litigant when you know you've got a coin toss? Do you feel that you've got justice? No, you don't. 
If you've got nine different judges, three will go one way and six will go another way. That is the message that it tells you when you see a split decision on something this important. Same facts put before them, they end up going different directions. Is that a justice system or is it some sort of gamble? Okay, but let's look at what they actually were split about, Paul. Well, at least two of the judges were completely disagreed with the majority, but I think we should probably talk about why it matters to driving. Well, it's a carbon tax. There you I, go. I, 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 All right, we've I, resolved that. We can move on to the next topic. Do you pay for gas? You pay park carbon tax. Yeah. So all of the people who drive well, Teslas no, we, are we not need, affected. We need, you know, and putting aside your rant about how the justice system is broken, which I disagree with. And frankly, I, you know, I don't like that that's happening right now. Um, putting that aside, the decision is actually very important from a constitutional law perspective in Canada. They applied a principle that's not often used, which is that it's going to apply to everybody across the country and therefore peace, order, good government. Mm, no? Yeah, I mean, that's a weird articulation of it. But so, so the Constitution allows the federal government to legislate in all sorts of different areas. And it allows the provincial governments to legislate in all sorts of different areas. And then there's these things that are like double aspect where they can be both provincial and they can be federal. And there's a, a rule that governs them called the double aspect doctrine. But there's also an overarching principle in enacting legislation or in any actions undertaken by the government that we don't see often. And there's two of them. And it's actually very relevant right now because they have the emergency power, which is being used to do all the shit that they're doing for COVID and they basically get to do whatever they want using the emergency power and get away with it. The federal government can also say, we're doing this for peace, order, and good government. And even if they're encroaching in other areas, if they if it's within their POG powers, as they call them, and it always makes me think of being a kid in the 90s and playing POGs, then they can get away with it. Yep. And this case That was found, my summary. Yeah. You mocked my summary. That no, was my summary. I just articulated it in a way that our listeners might understand better. <laughs> you well, know, mine, they, wasn't, mine wasn't awkward. I mean, it was not They ideal, essentially but. married the POG power and the double aspect doctrine. Not been done before in Canadian constitutional law. So kind of cool. Yeah. And uh, they did it in a circumstance where they weren't... Um, passing legislation that was necessarily going to apply everywhere, uh, which is interesting too, because it only is applying in provinces where they don't do something. Yeah. And that's so one that of the reasons. that was another interesting twist to it. And it's one of the reasons why the majority found that it wasn't really like a problem as far as division of powers was concerned, because they still left it up to the province to do something about the climate crisis. And then said, but if you're not going to do something for our obligation in peace, order, and good government, we're going to do something in case you don't. And which was interesting. And because I was thinking about it and it sort of cut both ways. On the one hand, they're saying, well, this is clearly the provincial governments can do it. Mm -hmm. um, then on the other hand, they were saying, and so it, it is within your realm of authority and power. And we recognize that. Mm -hmm. And then on the other hand, they're saying, well, but if you're not going to do it, we are going to let the federal government have the authority to do it to you. So in the end, I think they looked at those two potentially conflicting ideas and the government made the decision, okay, 
we think we can we can we can defend this and we can probably defend it better in those circumstances because we still recognize the autonomy of the provinces to yep. legislate. Yep, it was clever. I foresee now that this judgment has been rendered, we might as part of COVID recovery get a whole swath of new taxes that the federal government is imposing unless the provincial government does something for COVID recovery, taxation wise. Uh, I'd be surprised. Uh, I'd be surprised. But, I, but carbon taxes across the country are, are Look, uh, universal, are going to be universal and it's going to apply in any type of, it's not just going to apply at the pump, it's going to apply for your natural gas and everything. And are you going to really hurt from it? No, because everybody's going to be in the same boat. And it will hopefully uh, inspire you to use less fuel, which is the idea. Sure. Okay. <laughs> I'm not buying an electric car anytime soon, but I also can't afford to change my car, so. You have nowhere to plug in. I also have nowhere to plug in. I need to own a house or. That, that is actually the, probably the largest disincentive to electric cars in the lower mainland is everybody who, who owns a house where they can potentially have a plug-in for one probably has decided to buy an electric car, like a huge yeah. portion of the population. You could, you could afford There's a house so that has Teslas a plug, here. you have a Tesla. <laughs> you walk through the parking lots here in, in Vancouver and you can just go Tesla, Tesla, Tesla. There's so many of them. I mean, they're banal mm -hmm. um, and they're not that nice to ride in, but they... You know, there's cool parts, certainly cool aspects of them. They're very safe yep. uh, and so forth. But My, uh, there's so many of them here and it really, we are just restricted by um, the capacity to, uh, to plug it in overnight. My friend River um, was talking about Andrew Weaver dumping on cyclists and, and calling them a cult, which, and then they, of course, cyclist him. Yep. They biked all over him on Twitter, uh, it turned into a news story. And I thought, huh, me and Andrew Weaver have a lot in common. <laughs> Who'd have thunk it? Well, you've been attacked it, by the cyclist yeah. uh, community. And yeah. anytime you post anything on Twitter that seems even remotely anti-cyclist, even if it's just like the government is doing this. This was last podcast. We talked about this. So anyway, River and I disagree on this, but respectfully. And uh, they commented that, and, you know, it's easy for Andrew Weaver to say, what he's saying about this because, you know, it's easy to say that, that cycling is a, um, not about the climate when you live in a $2 million house with a driveway that you can park your Tesla in. And then I thought about it and I thought, you can't get a house with a driveway for $2 million. <laughs> not in the Vancouver area, maybe in the, maybe in Victoria. I don't know. Prices have gone not up. Not really in Victoria pandemic. either. Yeah. All right, so moving on to the past, the things that we've missed that have been so important that we should have talked about. The first is a 90-day IRP judicial review decision, and I'm going to make you pronounce the name because you were saying it with a funny accent. Oh, I forget. Was this Ost Osterreicher? 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 somebody from Austria. I said Osterreicher yeah. uh, when I read it in my head. Maybe Osterreicher. Osterreicher. Okay. Well, anyway, Mr. O. I mean, my pronunciation isn't good, but it's better than yours. I realize you haven't read the case, but I thought it would interest you because you have very passionate feelings about refusal to blow allegations and the suspension of charter rights that happens in refusal cases. So Mr. Osterreicher is uh, stopped by Abbotsford Police Department. He's in his vehicle. 
and he's told uh, that he's under arrest for assault. So the investigation starts out being not about an IRP. He just happened to be in his car. Uh, He's told that he can call a lawyer, and he says, yep, I'm invoking that right. And then the officer took some steps to facilitate the request, and then noticed an odor of liquor on his breath, a glassy eyes, there was some conversation about drinking, there were some symptoms, the officer forms a suspicion, reads an ASD demand, and Mr. Osterreicher says, well, I'm not doing that until I talk to that lawyer you told me I could call. Exactly. As should be his right in Canadian law. And he was issued the IRP for refusal. So obviously he challenged it, and um, as the the court said um, at paragraph 7, Mr. Osterreicher pulled no punches before the adjudicator. He argued that Constable Walker's account, including evidence of odor of alcohol and glassy eyes, was perjury, and that Constable Walker did not suspect that Mr. Osterreicher had alcohol in his body. On the objective ground side, Mr. Osterreicher argued that there were no significant indicia of impairment, um, and so on and so forth. I didn't really like that that language. By the judge? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but in any event, uh, the, uh, he pulled no punches and he argued, first of all, that the demand was not lawful. He argued that, uh, the officer, um, had delayed the demand. Uh, he argued that he had a reasonable excuse for not complying on the basis of the fact that his right to counsel had been triggered, which is the one that really interests me. And, and me. he also argued that his charter rights had been violated at the time that he was dealing with the officer. And of course, there's jurisprudence to suggest that a charter violation can form the basis of a reasonable excuse. Specifically, he said um, that his Section 9 rights were violated because of the detention being arbitrary, and Section 10 based on the failure to implement the right to counsel. And uh, the adjudicator considered this whole charter violations, like fairness issue, rejected that, no, nah, there's no breach here. He said you could call a lawyer, but no need uh, no need for you to call it. So he's judicially reviewing this. You know, you would have won this one. The, 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 this fact pattern would have succeeded likely in Alberta with their review board. Yep. Also, this fact pattern would succeed at trial. Absolutely. Well, God, Crown wouldn't even take it to trial. No. It's just ridiculous. Um, so... As far as the adjudicator's, like, assessment, the court finds everything was reasonable as far as the adjudicator rejecting everything that Mr. Osterreicher said. And um, he even said, the officer had said it took 23 minutes for him to form the suspicion after he's arrested the guy. Interacting with him for 23 minutes and then finally, after all that time, he goes, you know, maybe that guy has some alcohol in his body. Yeah. I Come suspect on. he does. Like, that's absurd. Oh my gosh. He argued in the hearing that the adjudicator failed to address this unfathomable fact. And um, the uh, the court says, Mr. Osterreicher, or sorry, in any event, the adjudicator did address the time between the arrest and making the ASD demand. She referred to the fact that Constable Walker was the only police officer on scene after the arrest and that he was dealing with Mr. Osterreicher and his girlfriend. She referred to the fact that Mr. Osterreicher made a request to speak to a lawyer upon being advised of his right to retain and instruct counsel, and Constable Walker was in the process of facilitating this request. I don't see how the fact that he was doing a bunch of stuff related to the investigation changes whether or not he would smell liquor and form a suspicion. 
still provide the explanation of how he could not have smelled liquor. Yeah. Provide Why? the explanation. Where, where is the evidence? Yeah, exactly. It's speculating about what he was doing is speculating. So as far as this, this charter issue, um, the adjudicator rejected his evidence on the basis of the fact that you don't have the right to counsel when you're given an ASD demand. And it like completely misses the point. And the court upholds Makes me this. so upset. The, the court says that, that, that this is fine, that it was, it wasn't suspended because the officer then made an ASD demand. So everything changed. But that's the whole point of the case I argued Kessler mm-hmm. and the West and Dearden cases and even the McCulloch case. Like they all say, this is a 10A issue. If you don't know that the focus of the investigation has now shifted and now the officer is investigating impaired driving 23 minutes later after he's gone and interviewed your girlfriend, gone and done all these other things, it took him 23 minutes to form his suspicion, then how can you possibly understand that your right to counsel, having been informed of it and having invoked it, thereby triggering a hold-off requirement, which I would note the officer breached in this case by questioning him about alcohol consumption as he was forming his suspicion, how could you say that a person would just know what they were being investigated for? Well, and suddenly know what they have to do. So they've been told, they've been detained. The person's been detained. He's been detained there for a long time. He's been told, you have a right to talk to a lawyer. You don't have to do anything else until you've talked to your lawyer. You will get informed by your lawyer. Your lawyer will let you know what you need to do and can provide you with that advice. Mm-hmm. I'm a police officer. I'm not in the interest here of helping you. I'm investigating you. Your lawyer can provide you with advice, legal advice. You have a right to talk to a lawyer. So you're informed of that right. Yeah. And you exercise that right. And the adjudicator. And then the police officer's coming and he's giving you different legal advice. And now the legal advice is you've got to provide a sample to an approved screening device. After he's told you, you don't have to participate in anything. After he's told you, nothing's happening until you talk to your lawyer, man. Yep. And made you wait 23 minutes for that fucking privilege. And now suddenly you get different advice from the police officer about what you're supposed to do. Oh, but it's not advice. Because all the police officer apparently has to do is read the ASD demand. And that'll tell somebody that they're now no longer being investigated for an assault offense. That that investigation has concluded, I guess. And then the officer's now proceeding with an impaired driving investigation. These are the words of the ASD demand. Go ahead, please. I have reasonable grounds to suspect, well, the suspicion demand. I have reasonable grounds to suspect that you have, within the preceding three hours, operated a conveyance with alcohol in your body. I hereby demand that you provide a sample of your breath immediately, suitable for analysis, using an approved screening device. How does that tell you that you're under investigation for something different? We should probably... There's nothing wrong We with, should probably do a poll of like a hundred people. There's no, there's and, no and law. Have that demand read to them and see if any of them understand it. Unless you're an end driver, there's no law against operating a conveyance with alcohol in your body. So it doesn't tell you that you're under investigation for any type of impaired driving offense. It tells you, I think you had alcohol in your body while you were in a car. I want you to blow into a breathalyzer. It doesn't say this focus of this investigation has fundamentally shifted. You're facing different jeopardy, right? The the Supreme Court of Canada has said that if your jeopardy shifts 
in the course of an investigation, if your jeopardy changes, then your right to counsel is re-triggered. You can't go from something that triggered your right to counsel, an assault investigation, to then 23 minutes later, an ASD demand and an impaired driving investigation where now you're facing a $2,000 fine, one-year driving prohibition, criminal record, 10 points on your license, all that other shit and tell you that your jeopardy hasn't shifted because it's an ASD demand so the right to counsel's not triggered. I just, it boggles my mind that I, that this has gone where it is. Mm -hmm. I didn't know about this decision. You're telling me about this decision. Mm -hmm. I've seen decisions from the superintendent's office which lead me to conclude that they've decided that this was the direction they were going to go. Oh, yeah. Because we see a bunch of decisions where all of a sudden this was uh, something they were rejecting the arguments in various different ways that I cannot the defy logic um, in my experience. But, you know, logic has not much to do with it when six judges go one way and three go the other. Um, but this to me is just disturbing because of the suspension of charter mm -hmm. rights to start with, with an ASD demand. Mm -hmm. It's telling you that the police can start any old investigation, detain you and let you know about your charter rights and hold you there. And all of a sudden they, they may have violated every charter right up until that point. But it don't matter. It don't matter because then they can just make an ASD demand mm -hmm. yep. and and you refuse. They could have told you anything. They could have lied to you about anything. They could I have told you think, anything. Think Five about, different officers could have dealt with you. Think about the totally common police tactic of stopping people they suspect are engaged in dial-a-doping. What the hell is happening, Kyle? Pulling like, them what? over, doing all sorts of unlawful searches of their car, detaining them for possession for the purposes of trafficking and trafficking offenses for which they don't have reasonable grounds, and then reading an ASD demand to get out of it all. Yeah. Like, oh, but I suspended all their rights when I read the ASD demand, so ha ha ha. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry, this is rife for abuse. And all of those cases, the last thing I'll say about this, all of the fucking cases that have dealt with the suspension of the right to counsel in ASD cases were cases where people were pulled over or stopped at roadblocks and the investigation was into their sobriety. That's Those are the ones where the Supreme Court of Canada has said, yeah, the suspension takes place. It's not cases where there's a completely different investigation with different jeopardy that shifts partway through. I just wonder what the hell's going on. I, it just feels like there's some desire somewhere, maybe yeah. at conferences, they decide, you know, people <laughs> in impaired driving cases aren't going to have charter rights anymore. Well, you know, they're drunk drivers, Paul. They don't deserve anything. And we're sorry, bad, awful people, scum of the earth for defending them. So I just think like, you know, People who lived through the Second World War, when we had judges who lived through the Second World War, they actually took the charter more seriously, and it just doesn't feel like it's being taken seriously anymore. That's just my feeling. Can I cheer you up with a different case? Yes. This is a case from February, actually. It's a pretty nice case. This is a Charanjeet Char Char Dillon, who through no fault of her own, ended up pleading guilty to some traffic tickets. She got some tickets. They were given to her. Her daughter, trying to be nice and helpful and a good daughter, went and paid the violation ticket without getting permission from her parents. Like, oh, oh I'll pay this for my parents. Oh. Provided her credit card receipt. Um, she was, it was a U-turn ticket and a speeding ticket. And obviously there were problems with that. So she applies 
to appeal her conviction. Files an appeal. But, of course, she's out of time by the time she's learned her daughter's done this. Wow. And having to, you know, there's the consequences associated with it, right, that led to her realizing. Yes. So she had to file for an uh, for an extension of the time to appeal. And, um, and then if the extension was granted, she then had to have a separate hearing for the purposes of setting aside her convictions on the basis that her plea was not voluntary. Exactly. Yeah. And this is, I, I, I've seen this fact pattern before. It happens and I, all the time. I, I can't remember how I fixed it in the past, but I didn't have to go to court to deal with it. I did manage to get it undone. Anyway, the good news part of this story is that Miss Dillon was thankfully the crown took the position that because she had brought a letter from her daughter to explain what happened along with the credit card receipt. Um, and she had seen the information from Ms. Dillon about the defenses that she said she had to the charges, uh, that she, um, uh, that she was going to concede that the extension of time should be allowed, but also that the, hearing for the extension of time should be converted into the appeal hearing and the crown then conceded the appeal and the application to extend time was granted the appeal was deemed to have been filed and allowed and the matter remitted to the provincial court for a new trial good and i thought this would cheer you up after talking about mr osterreicher because there's one fundamental difference between what happened to miss dillon in her you know ability to and and experience in navigating the justice system and Mr. Osterreicher and his experience in navigating the justice system. Well, the fundamental difference is the person who is conducting the appeal for the government in the Dillon case is a uh, former Crown prosecutor who prosecuted but criminal cases. Is a Crown prosecutor. Is a Crown prosecutor now doing appeals. Yeah. And she has a very good understanding of the procedure yep. and charter rights Yeah, you have and rights and values and fairness. A prosecutor who, who's sitting there going, my job is to look at this and do what's in the interests of justice. Now, Mr. Osterreicher on his judicial review also had a crown on the other side, but his job wasn't to look at what's fair and right and in the interests of justice because he's working as a sort of a civil crown, so to speak. Um, in the con law and min law group, his job was to defend the reasonableness of the adjudicator's decision. And the adjudicator's job, I won't say <laughs> on this podcast, the adjudicator's job was to fairly consider all of the evidence before her and come to a conclusion. Yeah. And the court was required, in Mr. Osterreicher's case, to give deference to the decisions of the adjudicator. Which brings me back to my other ongoing complaint about the justice system. Fairness. Fairness is a one issue, um, but my bigger issue and has been for much of my career is deference to the the primary decision maker. So we have this idea of judgment. Judgment is rendered by somebody. It's very biblical. Judgment. You're going to appear before the judge. Um, the final judgment. You're you're you show up at the pearly gates and you're in court. It's and there's the final. Judgment. And one uh, one person shall make that decision. And they make all the findings of fact. And they can make judges. I've heard judges joke about it at dinners. Yeah, I could make findings of fact to fit any result I wanted. Um, of course, they're not supposed to do that. And most of them, I think, probably 
enter into that system, not with that intention. But the problem, of course, is intentional or not, you can make findings of fact to fit a result. And if you are of the three of that nine or the six of that nine, your findings of fact, if you were to just pick out random nine judges, are going to be deferred to. When you think of those judges who are, are dealing with those fact patterns where it's a 50-50 in the room, mm-hmm. you know, those, those findings of fact are deferred to by the appellate court, which to me is just shocking. And the more I think about it, the more I, I, I cannot understand how we can accept that. It just is so wrong to me. You can't appeal on the findings of fact, even if you've got a judge who makes findings of fact that are are just out to lunch. Um, so long as they can point to something, it's not something that's going to be likely successful on appeal. Which is why you don't see it, p- appeals of findings of fact. It's always like some sort of legal issue. It's a the gross failing of our justice system. End of my lecture. Well, Paul, that was a great lecture. Well, I'm I'm sorry. It's just I'm passionate about these things, and it is something that's bothered me most of my career. Yeah, I mean, I I gotta say that the for me the thing that bothers me so much is that a BC Supreme Court judge has to have deference to an adjudicator who doesn't have to have any particular qualifications or training or n- know anything about the law. Well. I mean, I, I have great trouble having deference to the adjudicator when you can see the pattern in the decisions that has been pointed out by a couple of judges early on, where the decisions look like they are reverse engineered to get to a result. And that is my concern about, it's a, the example of what I think is the, is the uh, um, inappropriate use of these findings of fact, and it's, and it's, exploited, um, it's exploited in that process. Mm-hmm. And I, I, and I can't, I can't stand by it. I mean, I, I, I can't support it. Well, I'm going to reward you with the Ridiculous Driver of the Week. The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. I'm excited. Who is it? What did they do? It's another one from our friend Sergeant Christensen on Twitter who uh, two days ago uh, posted a tweet that says, If you are supervising your 17-year-old son driving on an L license, you shouldn't allow him to do 111 kilometers an hour on Granville Street, a 50-kilometer-an-hour zone, and make sure there's an L on the vehicle. No L. No L! So the L driver's driving. Yep. Dad's parent, supervising. Parent is in the car. 111 kilometers an hour. 111. On a city street going yep. north-south just like the the accident that was the dangerous driving causing death. Like yep. it's running parallel to the... You know, funny thing about, about that. They're only charging dangerous driving on those excessive speed cases where there's death or injury. Yeah, we could talk about that another day. Let's focus on the ridiculousness Sorry. of this. The reason I want to focus on the ridiculousness is this is the second one. This is the first, this is a yeah. dad, right? This is a parent as a supervisor. Yeah, why is it the a other dad? One was, There's no gender well, in it. It doesn't matter. It's a parent as a supervisor. A mom. Well, whatever. It's a parent as a supervisor. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, it could be a mom. Sure enough, could be, could be 
who knows? Although, like, I feel like if I were driving and I was doing that and my dad was in the car, he probably wouldn't say anything. But if I was doing that, if my mom was in the car, you can't see me right now, listeners, but I'm imitating my mom leaned back in the seat, gripping to the, the handle thingy on the, on the door and going, slow down. And I'm going like 65 in a 50 zone. (laughs) Your mother's a very careful driver. She's, Uh, that's a word for it. Careful. Yes. She's a good driver. Let's go, Granny, go. Not, oh, come on. <laughs> Don't knock your mom. Anyway, the point is that this is the second time that he has got somebody in the last couple of weeks or that the VPD have stopped someone in the last few weeks where there was a supervisor in the vehicle. Yep. The supervisor was clearly not doing their job. Uh, there's a hole in the Motor Vehicle Act, and that is that there's no accountability for the supervisor uh, in those circumstances. Now, you know, you might be able to say, I told that kid to slow down. I didn't want to grab the wheel. You know, I didn't know what was in so on and so forth. There may, it can be a defense certainly written into it. Sure. But, uh, I suspect the legislation is coming. Um, well, especially when look, Mike, Mike Farnworth is already. Mike Farnworth spoke publicly about it in a news story that I spoke publicly about it in. And Sergeant Christensen has Spoken publicly. Spoken publicly about so it. So we've got the leading driving <laughs> law lawyer in the province and the one of the most experienced, perhaps the most experienced, soon to retire, I think, police officer, traffic enforcement officer, yep. um, who you don't want to get pulled over by, I can tell you, and abide by the law. the Minister of and Public Safety Minister of Public Safety. Solicitor General Mike Farnworth all agree. There you go. You guys could just that's, get together. That's, that's really the ridiculous thing. You guys thing. could get, over, get together <laughs> over a beer and probably write it out. Yeah, sure. I'm down. Mike Farnworth, I know you don't listen to podcasts, but I'm down. If, you're, if your staff listen, tell 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 Mike I'm, I'm in. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, Sergeant Christensen, come have a beer with us. It'll be a party. Yeah, Mike's in the lower mainland too. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, Perfect. it'll be great. Yeah. And that's our podcast. Do it outside on a patio probably safe or in a park. I had a dream the other day. No. I'll tell you after. This is our podcast. It was a great dream. This is not the dream podcast. The Paul's Dream Podcast is every Wednesday. Nobody tunes in. (laughs) I'll tell you all about it. The moment we're off the podcast. Oh, it's so exciting. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law. If you need to reach us about a driving law related issue, or if your child went 111 kilometers an hour despite your protestation in the car, give us a call 604-685-8889 or find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law. 